So welcome everybody to the second part of this series. Last week we were talking about, we gave like a gazillion proofs. Today we're gonna, uh, historical proofs. Um, and so today we're just gonna, we're gonna move uh, on from there. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So session two of this, uh, of this series entitled uh, For Real. For real, like the Eucharist is for real, it is for real, that it is the body and blood of Christ. I was saying that uh, this was kind of instigated by uh, conversations I was having with numerous different people about this topic. Um, is Do we really believe that this is the real body and the real blood of Christ? Or is it like symbolic or commemorative or there's a, Christ is present spiritually, but... I mean, but it looks like bread and wine, so how could it be the, the real thing? And um, at the same time, Francis Chan, this, this evangelical, like, uh, you know, uh, really, really big name in evangelicalism, um, uh, you know, says in a sermon, I didn't know for the first 1500 years, everyone saw communion as the literal body and blood of Christ. And... Um, and that cre- this created like a ripple effect in, in the evangelical world and it's causing a lot of people to reconsider this question. And so we talked a little bit more about that in the introduction and last week. And last week I was saying that my objective in brief is the same thing that, G- that St. John uses as his, his purpose statement of his gospel is that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the, St. John says, this is the reason that he, he wrote the things that he wrote in his gospel. And he says, I could have written many other things. And then the verse before this, he says, if I were to write all of the wonderful things that Jesus did, the books of all the world would not be enough. All the world would not be enough to contain all of the books that would be written. But these things were written that you may believe and it's believing in him that we have life in his name. Jesus says the same thing in his high priestly prayer, his last prayer before being arrested. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And in a certain sense, he is sent to us every single time we gather and pray together and celebrate a liturgy together. He is, he is sent to us in the flesh and in his blood in the altar. And so we're examining this statement. And last week, and I'm not going to, uh, you know, do an entire review of last week because it was, it was quite, uh, you know, full and lengthy. We, you know, we started off with what Jesus says in John 6, that he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. And it's a non-conditional statement. Jesus doesn't put any conditions on that. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And Jesus introduces this as his introductory statement to abiding in him. It begins, it begins and it is perpetuated and continues and grows and is nourished by 
eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which he says, I am the living bread which came down from, from heaven. And other things Jesus said we examined last week, but we're not going to today. And St. Paul also says beautiful things in 1 Corinthians 10 and in 1 Corinthians 11. And last week I gave a whole list of different scriptural references that you can look at that would, would, uh, would uh, support um, these statements. And that, that uh, is already, that um, last week's video is already online. And uh, the slides have been integrated into it because we recognize there was a lot of text. And sometimes it's better to see it than to hear it. So you can, if you missed it, you can catch it. And then we talked about what the Didache says, the teachings of the apostles for catechumens, and what St. Ignatius of Antioch says, and what St. Justin Martyr says, and what St. Athanasius says, and the whole host of other early church fathers, and what they all say. And we concluded with what St. Cyril of Jerusalem, uh, one of the church fathers who lived in the 4th century, Around 360, 370, he said in his in his catechism, in his uh, he had 13 different volumes of preparing people for baptism to join the church. He says, "I have received of the Lord that which was uh, which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread." This teaching of the blessed Paul is alone sufficient to give you full assurance concerning those divine mysteries, which when you are vouchsafed, like he says, like when you will be baptized, you are of the same body and blood with Christ. You, you are of the same body and blood of Christ. For he has just distinctly said that our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And having taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take, drink, this is my blood. This is the, the part I wanted us to emphasize. Since then, he himself has declared and said of the bread, this is my body. Who shall dare to doubt any longer? And since he has affirmed and said, this is my blood, who shall ever hesitate saying, it is not his blood? We looked at what some modern historians say, and this is a, this is just a. I'm just I just cherry picked one from every section of era of time, you know. So this is the or the, here are two. I'll maybe I'll skip this one. Um, here, Philip Schaff says the doctrine of the sacrament of the Eucharist was not a subject of theological controversy till the time of Pascasius Radbert in the ninth century. In general, this period was already very strongly inclined towards the doctrine of transubstantiation and towards the Greek and Roman sacrifice of the mass, which are in, inseparable insofar as a real sacrifice requires the real presence of a victim. What he's saying here is that for it to be a real sacrifice, not a symbolic sacrifice, it would require a real victim. So is the sacrifice symbolic? Then, then, the, then the, the offering could be symbolic, you know? Um, there's a, there's a couple of really interesting stories in the Synexarium where people were making fun of Christians and pretended that they were being baptized, right? And God took that seriously and even then dispensed his Holy Spirit and made it a real baptism twice. Uh, once with St. Athanasius when he was a boy and another fellow who ended up being a martyr, a jester in the court of the emperor was making fun of Christians, right? And so... <laughs> Even in the context of where something is being made fun of, if God finds a believing and sincere heart, he may make it real. 
But if you want something to be real for sure, then the sacrifice has to be real, right? The same way that if uh, if our Orban guys, if our Bethlehem team go on holiday for a week, we don't we don't have a sacrifice, so we wouldn't be able to pray the liturgy. We could have a prayer meeting. We could pretend, we could do a teaching session about the liturgy, but we wouldn't be able to do the real thing without a real offering. That's what he's saying here. He goes on in much more detail about it later, but I just kind of saw what I was saying. Martin Luther himself, the father of the, of the Protestant Reformation, believed in, the, in, the, in a real presence, um, a real presence in the, in the, in the, in the matter, in the, in the, sub, in the, in the a substantial presence. And he says, since we are confronted by God's words, this is my body, distinct, clear, common, definite words, they, which certainly are no trope, either in scripture or in any language. We must embrace them with faith, not as hair-splitting sophistry dictates, but as God says them for us. We must repeat these words after him and Hold to them. He's saying, let's not, these, these words are clear and simple and, and, and in any language would be understood. They're no trope. They're no joke. You know, this isn't hair-splitting sophistry, hair-splitting hair, hair, hair philosophy, philosophizing. This is a very clear and simple doctrine. And Jesus says it. We ought to believe it. And we ought to believe him and take him at his words and hold to it. Very, very dearly. Okay, Father John, all this evidence and tons more that you can catch in last week's session. So where's the controversy? You're saying that everybody up until the Protestant Reformation, including the father of, of the Protestant Reformation, and then obviously the rest of the Catholic Church and the, and the Orthodox Church afterwards all believe this. So why are we talking about this? Where, where is the controversy? Well, the controversy, um, there's a whole bunch of different questions, but these are just a few things that I've heard and I figured I curated some of the common questions and we'll kind of, uh, uh, we'll, we'll kind of um, assess them, maybe in this order, maybe not. We'll just kind of go through them together. So where did the controversy originate? How could the, the be the true Eucharist if Jesus is still alive? How many times may, must Jesus be crucified? Those are two will be answered together. And is it just memorial will also be a- answered with that. And isn't this just all cannibalism? Let me start with the cannibalism bit because I just kind of want to get it uh, out of the way. So cannibalism is eating dead people, right? Our belief, our faith is that this is the living body of the living Christ. So right there, it kind of defies the definition of cannibalism. However, it still is a little bit unsettling that you're eating another human and you're actually eating him alive, right? So in a certain sense, that is still somewhat unsettling. Cannibalism also involves killing, like, like you know, murder or, or, or slaughter, right? Which in this case is, is and isn't, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about how Jesus is both He's both crucified for us, he's both broken for us, and yet he remains alive forever, forevermore. So we'll kind, of, we'll kind of answer that when we talk about is it memorial. And then another thing that's worth mentioning is that at the same time as Jesus, as um, the, the Father in the Old Testament commands, thou shall not kill in the Ten Commandments, then in Ecclesiastes it says there is a time to give birth and a time to kill. And similarly... Um, God, who commanded Moses, thou shall not kill, also commands him, you know, to, 
uh, in all of these wars to the genocide of the Amalekites and the genocide of the Amorites and these things. And I know these things are like hard for us to hear the word God commanding genocide, right? And we worry that that could be used as like, you know, um, fodder for, for sort of hate propaganda and violence and racism and so on. And I agree with you that it is, it is a little bit hard on our ears, but there are beautiful, beautiful explanations which kind of are outside of our focus today. But the point is this, is that God does give general commands and then he gives specific commands at different times. And those specific commands may or may not be in line with the general commandments. Also, sometimes God gives commandments which are contextual. He says, if your brother sins against you, for example, in the Pauline today, St. Paul says, do not keep company with a, one who is named a brother who is sexually immoral. Who is this? Who is this? Who is that? Who is that? He doesn't say, and later on he clarifies, wait, I didn't mean all people are sexually immoral. How the gospel spread in the world? How would the gospel spread to the people who don't know it? How would they hear the gospel if you're going to stay in your little cocoon away from all the evil sinners out there? Of course not. No. But if one is professing to be a brother and professing to follow Christ and professing with his mouth, yes, 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 and is unrepentant, no. You should either repent and walk according to the teachings of Jesus or I can't, I can't keep company with you. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a, it is a tough word, but it's contextual and it's important that we keep it in context. So all of these things are quite important. If you look at Jesus's teaching and St. Paul's teaching and the early church's teaching on this business of cannibalism, you'll find that that is certainly not the case. In fact, last week we explained that St. Justin Martyr was pagan and actually he was sent as an inquisitor, as someone to go and investigate these cannibals. And in so doing, he was convinced of the faith and he wrote his apology back to the emperor and he was martyred for it. So I just thought we would get that out of the way. So let's start with where did this controversy originate? Well, it originated, as far as I could tell, I am no expert in, in Reformation studies and, and, and Protestant church history, but I had some friends who are Protestant kind of help me out, and we've been having lots of really interesting conversations. And as far as I can tell, it started with Ulrich Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli was, he was a Roman Catholic priest at the time of the Reformation, and he followed along with Luther in the Reformation and left Roman Catholicism. And his beef, his beef was sacramentalism. Now, it's really important to understand the context in which he was in to have an idea of why he said what he said and why he did what he did, whether you choose to agree with it in the end or not. His beef was sacramentalism. At the time, church was, Roman Catholic Church was entirely in Latin. In whatever lands it was, it was in Latin. Latin was not the common vernacular, so it would be the, the equivalent of us doing all of our services in Coptic. But in addition, in addition to that, this was just around the time of the printing press, so most people were not literate, number one. But number two, they were being asked to learn and understand Scripture in Latin. Furthermore, Furthermore, which is, was very difficult for people. Furthermore, it was a primal teaching of the church at the time that salvation could only be achieved through the sacraments. And so that gave the priesthood at the time a monopoly on salvation. They had the keys to the kingdom of, the, of heaven, literally and figuratively, and they could let in whoever they wanted to let in and not let in whoever they didn't. 
And this, of course, led to, to certain abuses. So this sacramentalism, or sometimes it's called clericalism, where the, 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 the clerics, you know, kind of gang up on the, on the people and impose themselves, you know, a certain fake kind of power on the people. That's what Zwingli was witnessing and that's what Zwingli was responding to. And so he had a friend and they were corresponding who believed that when Jesus said, this is my body, that the word is my body, he understood it as this signifies my body. And so he made a case for that. And guess who was his, his primary opponent? Martin Luther. And they actually had, had a, a, a conference at the end of the sixth cen- 16th century, 1597 or 27 or 1529, I can't remember. In the, in the 16th century, discussing, dis, uh, discussing, discussing this, and neither, they didn't really come to any kind of, of conclusion, and so they just kind of went their, their separate ways. They remained on collegial terms, but Martin Luther spoke very, very strongly um, about the, the real substantial um, presence of Christ. And so that's kind of the origins of the controversy. What he did believe is he did believe that there is a spiritual presence during the liturgy. He believed that what Jesus says, when two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there in their midst. But that's it. And that that was not limited, that spiritual presence, which was present during the liturgy or during the Eucharist or during Mass or whatever it was called, in, in whatever they would have called it in their time, that... Um, that that same presence could be present at other times without the liturgy or without mass, or, which is very different, of course, than the belief that the, the church has held, had held for 1,600 years up until, up until that time. So then comes the question, well, but doesn't Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me? So how do we like, reconcile that? Jesus says, do, that, do this in remembrance of me or do this in memory of me. I have to tell you, I researched this question probably more than anything else I researched in this whole series. And the, honestly, the best material I found for this is in a book by Father Tadros Malati uh, called Christ in the Eucharist. And if you just like find, you know, find in PDF document, you can find it as a PDF for free online and look up the word anamnesis. So, you know, if you like forget it's called amnesia. You know, you get hit in the head and you forget what just happened or you forget your childhood or whatever it's called. So anam, anamnesis, right? And the word that Jesus uses here is do this anamnesis of me. And the early church fathers, in interpreting this word, they didn't feel comfortable translating it. Similar to, for example, the word nostalgia or the word liturgy or the, all of these are words or the word Eucharist, all of these are words that are, were just, they've been anglicized, but they are actually identical in the, in the original language. Like the word nostalgia, why don't we just, why don't we use a different word for it? Because, well, what does that mean? Do you know, for me to explain what it means, I need like a paragraph. So we just say nostalgia, right? You know, oh, geez, that, I'm so nostalgic of whatever. You know, I'm remembering fondly with deep feelings in my heart, you know, the, 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 you know by, by the solicitation of my senses, by some sensual, like, you know what I mean? Nostalgia, right? And so the early church fathers, similarly, same, same, as, same as we don't translate the word pantocrator, right? He, 
He is the, the one who is, um, uh, rules all things and from whom all things come and is capable of all things because he is the creator of all things. Yeah, a lot shorter to just say Pantocrator, right? And so the early church fathers didn't translate this word. They just used it as it was, anamnesis, right? Um, and the, the, the Greek word, this is from the dictionary here, it says, that, uh, for the Greek word anamnesis does not mean merely a remembrance or a memorial of a thing regarded as being absent, but it means recalling or representing the thing in an active sense. So... This is my analogy. All analogies are faulty. Don't like, uh, this is not gospel truth. You ever been on holiday and you're at the beach and it's the last day and you have to go home tomorrow and you're like, oh, why do I have to go back to real life? Why can't I just live on the beach forever? And as you're moaning and looking up at the beautiful blue sky and the crystal clear water, you, you see a shell and you're like, you pick it up and you just stick it in your pocket, right? And you know, you, you're doing your laundry when you get home and something's clanging in the, in the washing machine or in the dryer and you, you take your swimming trunks out or whatever out and you look and there's that shell and you're like, yeah, those are good times, right? Those were good times, right? Or, or uh, if you go to the Holy Land, they'll give you like little jars of sand and little jars of this and little. So th- that shell is not, or that sand, that, d- that dust from the Holy Land, from Jerusalem, from wherever, is not something, it's not a mo- something that you have as a memorial of something from which it is detached. It is actually, continues to be a part of that place. Though it is with you, though it is here, it is still as much a part of that place. That, that, that dust didn't become Canadian dust. You know, that dust came from, you know, Israel and it's, it's Israeli dust in a jar. You know what I mean? And it, that's, that's what it will be. The, the reason why this is a bad analogy, and I, I hummed and hawed a long time about whether it's to share it or not, is because all of those things that I mentioned to you are inanimate. They're all dead things. But this is different. This is, this is, a, this is, I can't even say a part of the body of Christ. This is the whole body of Christ that is present here. It's, it's not a memorial. It's not, like, it's not like if I give you something to remember me, so by that thing you remember me. You know, if you take some sand from the beach in Cuba and you bring it home, that is Cuban sand. It, 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 is, it is that thing. The only big difference is that, is that the thing that you have with you is not a part which has now been separated. You know, like the sand is now in Canada and Cuba's over there and they're separated by a three and a half hour flight. No, it's, it is a unit which is inseparable, which is un- You know, although it is broken and given for the life of the world, the wholeness of the body of Christ is present in every uh, in every single uh, speckle. And we'll we'll quote St. Ephraim the Syrian about that in a minute. The other reason why it's a bad analogy is because it's living. Right. If 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 I were to cut my finger off and give it to you as a memory of me, it would kind of gruesome, but it would be dead unless you preserved it in something it would decompose. It will, the moment that it is separated from me, it becomes dead. So the body of Christ is not separated. Although he is broken, 
the wholeness of the body of Christ is present in every single speck and every single crumb and every single gem. So a little bit more about that. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were offered and fire came down from heaven and burned the sacrifices. And oftentimes they would continue feeding the fire so the fire would just stay on the altar. But that was how they knew that a sacrifice was acceptable before God. Gideon offered a sacrifice and fire came down from heaven. Elijah offered a sacrifice. Fire came down from heaven. And the, and the, and the sacrifice is consumed. At the end, you know that God has approved of it because he has, he has consumed it with fire and the sacrifice is gone. Right? Whereas with Christ's sacrifice, speaking specifically of the cross and the resurrection, he is broken. He dies on the cross as his altar. But he comes back from the dead. And the sign of the, of the, sign of the approval of God, although it, it sounds like a circular argument, but nonetheless, you know, the fathers tell us and Abuna Tarjus tells us, is his resurrection. Is the fact that he doesn't just die like any other person who got crucified, but he comes back from the dead. And that's what makes him stand out. And that's what proves that his sacrifice is acceptable. So he becomes the living sacrifice. So then every time, every time we participate with him, we participate with him in death and in resurrection. So the sacrifice is living. And so that then this becomes a living memorial, a living anamnesis, a, 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 a living... So really, I couldn't find any analogy to give you of something which you could take a part of, which continues to be the wholeness of the thing that you took and remains alive. Like, I don't know, there might be some example, some example in esoteric biology of some plant that you can kind of cut off. But I, I couldn't, uh, I can think of some genetic examples actually. But anyways, nonetheless, right? So, and then another question which is often asked, so then if this is indeed Christ, and if he is indeed broken on the altar, then is he crucified time and time again? Wasn't it enough for him to be crucified once? And St. Paul says in Hebrews, he says, for the, for the offering is offered once and for all. So wasn't he offered once and for all? Yes. And that's what we discussed in the introduction in the icon. Remember, icons are intended to give us spiritual messages. In the, in the Coptic Orthodox rite of writing the icon of the Last Supper, whether it's written like this or it's, it's more long, it doesn't matter. You'll always notice that the table comes right to the bottom of the icon. And the reason for that is that because the, Jesus and his disciples are sitting around the table here. And the table continues and you and I are sitting around the other half of the table. What we believe, what we believe is not that we are recreating something old, but that we are entering into something old. We're not living in 2020 and remembering something from 33 AD. We who are in 2020 are entering into 33 AD and sitting around the table with Christ and his disciples and participating with them in one last supper, only one that ever happened. And in the introduction to this series, I was saying there's like 25 churches in the GTA and some of them have like five liturgies on a Sunday. So we're talking about like 35 liturg Coptic Orthodox liturgies maybe happen in the GTA on a Sunday. 
So are those 35 separate events? No, they're all of us are going and celebrating together. Even if we are not celebrating at the identical times, doesn't matter. We're all traveling back in time to be with Jesus and to celebrate with him and to participate with him in that one, in that one last supper. So he is not crucified multiple times. He is not resurrected multiple times. It's once and for all. And we are joining him in that. And we're joining him in that experience. This is a, a beautiful quote I'll share with you. But do we not daily offer the sacrifice? This is St. John Chrysostom being quoted by, um, in, this book about, in this book about liturgy by Jean Danielou. This is all from Abuna Tadros' uh, work in Christ in the Eucharist. But do we not daily offer the sacrifice? We offer it. But in making the anamnesis of his death. And this is unique, not multiple. It was offered once and he entered into the Holy of Holies. The anamnesis is the figure of his death. It is the same sacrifice that we offer, not one today and another tomorrow. Christ is one only, everywhere, entire, one only body. As everywhere there is one body, everywhere there is one sacrifice. This is the sacrifice that we now still offer. This is the meaning of the anamnesis. We carry out the anamnesis of the sacrifice. So I don't know if that helps to kind of answer the question, is this memorial? What does it mean that we're doing this in memory of Christ? And, and the questions about time, how many times will Jesus be crucified? This is the bit by St. Ephraim the Syrian. That he says, I have called it and it really is my body. The smallest part of this particle can sanctify thousands of souls and is sufficient to give life to those who receive it. And we talked a little bit and we talked already a little bit about that. God bless you all. And I, uh, I hope that this kind of gave you some, some food for thought. And I, my prayer for you and my prayer for myself is that as I enter the church, this is another gem that I learned from Father Tadras Malati. I don't know if he said it to me in person or, or I read it somewhere. He says, when you, when you hang your coat at the door of the church, Hang all your problems and your worries there. Your knotted ball of yarn of life. Just leave it there. And enter into the church with a, with a clear mind. And enjoy that moment with Christ. Enjoy being with Him. Enjoy being with His disciples. In, alive in the flesh and alive in the spirit. Enjoy that time. And when the two hours have gone by and you're going back out and you grab your coat. May you find that your knotted ball of yarn of life has all been arranged for you very nicely and smoothly, and you have so much more perspective to live your life. God bless you. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.